0: Hey, I was thinking this week as we talk about Palm Sunday, it's an interesting day. It's a day that's more than just kids waving palm branches, although that's cool too. Um, a bunch of them out there are like, hey, my palm branches are broken. Yeah, it's because you're beating one another with them. Um, and we'll get you one when you leave, but not right now. So that was the other conversation I was a part of a few minutes ago. But, but I was thinking about how Palm Sunday, what does it reflect? Why do we talk about it? What does it mean for us? And so I was thinking, how would we understand this in our current context well, we don't really function with kings much anymore in our day. I mean, I know on May 6th, I had to Google this, by the way, that uh, King Charles will be officially crowned king. Um, but I'm pretty sure that no one in the United Kingdom has any great expectations of things changing because Charles is now king. Right? We know it's basically ceremonial. So I was thinking, what does it mean for us to think in terms of kingship? So I, I, like a better analogy is not a great analogy, like, but we often think of, like in America, we talk about politics. And in my lifetime, every president who's been elected has said they're going to fulfill certain things, and none of them have done them all. In fact, every time someone leaves office, there's people who are disappointed. Like That's how that works. So I was thinking, well, what, what do we do? We we not long for a new leader. We long for the next person, because maybe, just maybe, that person will get it all right. Right. They'll they'll fix everything that's broken and they'll make things better. And we just have this expectation for this thing out there. And then if we find ourselves in the margins of society, our hope is the next person will reach into the margins. If We find ourselves in power or positions of influence. We hope that we'll continue to have positions of influence and our opinion will still be the most valued opinion. Over and over. But did you know this is not a new thing? In fact, did you know this is a really old thing? In fact, I would say this, it's about a 2,000 plus year old thing where people have longed for a new leader to come in and make things the way they desired or at least set them in the perspective in the way we hope. Right? I don't want their perspective, but I do want mine. This is not new. Over and over and over again from every generation, we're probably back as far as we can go. People have longed for someone to step in and make things right. In fact, what we're talking today is Palm Sunday. We're looking at text from Matthew chapter 21 in just a few moments. But it's known as the triumphal entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. It's during a season called Passover in which the city of 50,000 would swell to a city of 250,000. So take like Muskegon proper, which is a roughly 50,000 people, and add another 200,000 people to that. And just imagine what that would be like. It would be crowded. People would be everywhere. People would be... In places you didn't want them, it would just be nuts. And so into that, Jerusalem is that way. It's teeming with hopes and expectations about what might come. And Matthew talks about that particular text in chapter 21. And we'll get there in just a minute. But to get there, we kind of have to get there through the scriptures. And we go all the way back to Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, it says God created. And he created all these things. And everything he created, he said it was good after the creation begins, what we find next is that God creates all these things good. And then people enter into a relationship with God. Because here's the reality of who God is. God is love. And for God to live from his his nature and his character, it requires love. Now, have you noticed that a loving relationship goes two ways? Love one way is like unrequited love. Or it's like my brother when he was like about 10. Um, At one point, he had several hundred girlfriends, just so you know. Um, I'm not going to name any names, Andrew. Um, but, but he had several hundred girlfriends. And here we would ask him, like, hey, Andrew, how many of those girls know that you're a girlfriend? The answer was zero. None of them knew. He just thought they were cute or whatever, right? Like, so he had all these girlfriends. So it had unrequited love. It was love going one direction. But God, in his nature, desires to be in loving relationship with people. It is why we are created and why we exist, to know God's love and to be givers of God's love, to live in what we call like this divine dance of relationship with God, Father, Son, and Spirit. We're created in that way. But in order for us to choose to enter into a loving relationship with God, we have to have the choice to not choose to love God. And Adam and Eve made that choice, not unlike many of us. Because here's the reality, a relationship built on love is not a one-way relationship. Love must go both ways, otherwise it's control. Love has this kind of give and take, this getting to know one another, and so God created people to enter into a loving relationship with him. The problem was, we chose to go the other way. And so we see in Genesis chapter 3, Adam and Eve make a decision to go their own way instead of the way God desired for them. And so the story continues. God's not done with people, and he's not done with his creation. So we see in Genesis chapter 12, this call of Abram, and here's what the text says. The Lord had said to Abram, go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land. I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. I love that line. It's says Abram, Abram, you, I'm going to raise up a people from you. And not only are we going to raise up to, to bless you, but I want you to be a blessing to the world. The world will be radically transformed through you as a people. And Abram, this great faithful man, starts out super faithful. And not too long after, he's really unfaithful and scared. And so he even gives his wife to Pharaoh. Weird story, I know. And he goes from there, from after that, then he doesn't fully trust God. How am I going to become of this great numerous people? Because I don't have any kids and my wife's really old. And so she says, well, how? Just sleep with my servant. That'll work out well. And he does. And it doesn't work out well. Right? Crazy story. Eventually, Abram becomes Abraham and he moves into the promised land. And generations come. It's Abraham, Isaac, and then Jacob. Kind of a crazy family story. Jacob stole his brother's birthright. Jacob has 12 sons, But he had two wives, and he had a favorite wife. That's why you should only have one wife, because if you have a favorite wife, it's not going to go well. He has a favorite wife, and so his favorite wife had a son named Joseph. Well, that meant all his other brothers didn't like Joseph because Joseph was the favorite. And so Joseph becomes the favorite of Jacob, and Joseph's brothers can't stand this. And so they make a decision. We're going to sell him into slavery, and they do. And he's sold into slavery, and he's sold into Egypt, and eventually he finds himself in Potiphar's house, and Potiphar is the, the head of the guard for Pharaoh. And Joseph flourishes. But then Joseph's master's wife sees him. Potiphar's wife sees Joseph and has a crush and decides she wants to do something about it, but he's a good man, and he runs from her, but she makes an accusation, and he finds himself in prison. While in prison, Pharaoh has this dream, and he calls people in, and he can't answer the dream, and finally Joseph... Is remembered by some people, and he goes before Pharaoh, and Pharaoh tells him his dream, and Joseph answers. He says, hey, there's going to be seven years of famine, and, but before that, there'll be seven years of plenty, so if you'll do some things correctly, you'll be okay. Pharaoh goes, oh, pretty smart guy. You're number two in charge of all of Egypt now. So now Joseph, who's been sold into slavery, his brothers come looking for food. Joseph sees them. And long story short, his whole family moves to Egypt where they have food and where they are welcome or where they have prestige and influence. The problem for them is this that rather than staying there, they should have gone back home when the famine had ended. Instead, they stayed because they liked the position and the prestige. But then the scripture says there was a new Pharaoh who didn't remember Joseph. And all of Joseph's descendants, all of Abraham's family, they're enslaved. For 400 years, they become slaves in Egypt, and they cry out to God, and God hears their cries over and over again. And what we begin to find is God raises up a new leader to lead them out of Egypt. He raises up Moses. We have this scene that comes to the Exodus out of Egypt, where God takes those who are oppressed and enslaved, and he frees them. Right? Maybe last night you didn't watch college basketball, although I don't know why you would choose to not watch college basketball. But if you didn't... On another channel, you could watch The Ten Commandments with Charlton Heston, which was also on ABC last night. So um, you could watch College Basketball, our movie from 1954. Very good movie, but I've seen it. So, um, so maybe watch College Basketball instead. But anyway, the movie is, is based on this particular story where Moses leads the people out of Egypt. But then the people find themselves in the wilderness wandering. And they start grumbling against God. They start complaining about what God's done. And they find themselves going, oh, like this is, we, we need a new God. We need something else. and they say, make their own God. And it doesn't go well for them. And God's upset. And he says to Moses, Moses, I'm getting rid of these people. I'm bringing in new people for you. You can lead a new people into the promised land. I'm just done with them. They don't listen. They keep turning their back on me. And I've been faithful to them. And Moses, this is a great scene of why we pray, by the way. Moses goes, God, don't you know who you are? Like, you're steadfast in love, and you're gracious, and you're slow to become angry, and quick to forgive. And God's like, oh, yeah, okay, well, all right, if you put it that way. And eventually, they go into the promised land. They find themselves there, this land that they didn't prepare, that God had prepared for them. A land, as the scripture says, is flowing with milk and honey. And God raises up new leaders for them. They call them judges. You can read all about them in the book of Judges. And he raises up these leaders, but... The people are grumbling against God because God is their king. And they go, yeah, but God would really like an actual king, like, you know, like a, a person that we can look to. And he would, like, guide us and we could talk to him. And he'd be like, oh, you mean like, like me? You want me to be your king? I'm already your king. He's like, yeah, but, but God kind of like you, but like a person that we can see and touch and know. And he's like, well, um, you don't, I'm your king. And they go to Samuel and Samuel goes, hey, you guys don't really want a king because here's what happens if you have a king. If you have a king, April 15 tax time comes every year. You're going to have to pay taxes to the king. Your sons, they're going to go off to war and you're not going to have a choice in that. The king is going to declare. In fact, not only are your sons going to go off to war like that, not only is that going to happen, but but then your your daughters are going to have to serve in his household. Are you sure you really want a king? Oh, we want a king. We want a king. So God gives him a king. First king, Saul, looks like a king. He like, says so he's good looking, he's tall, he's strong. He's like everything you think a king should be, except for the fact that he's not faithful. And his unfaithfulness leads to brokenness. And God says, your family will not be the ones who are kings. I'm going to raise up a new leader. And he raises up David, becomes the next king. And David, scripture says he's a man after God's own heart. And so you're thinking, maybe now a king will get it right problem is the man after God's own heart didn't get it right. There's a scene in the scripture where he, he's checking out his neighbor's wife. And he brings her into his bed. And then not only is he screwing up enough there, but he has her husband killed. Man after God's own heart, huh? And then the rest of his family, you can read the story, his family becomes a wreck. And then eventually... His son Solomon becomes king, and you think, well, maybe Solomon will learn from the mistakes of his father, and he'll be the right king. He'll be the great king of Israel. David was considered the greatest king they'd ever known. they do only had two, right? It's pretty hard to be it's one or two, right? 50% chance. Solomon becomes the next king. Solomon starts out, right? He has this kind of vision, this dream where God says, I'll give you whatever you want. And he asks for wisdom. And you're like, wisdom? Like, that makes sense, right? You can get wealth. You can make good decisions. Solomon's known for his wisdom. He wrote what books in the Bible we call Song of Solomon or Ecclesiastes, or we even have a book called Proverbs where he uses his wisdom, like he was a good teacher. The problem is this, though. In all his wisdom, the scripture says, eventually his heart was led astray because he allowed he had hundreds of wives that's why one is enough, right? Hundreds of wives lead him into all kinds of trouble. It says his heart was led astray by his many laws, by the women who he loved. At Solomon's death, the kingdom is torn into Israel in the north, Judah in the south. And it's over and over again different nations taking over empires, coming in and pushing them out. It's the Assyrians, the Persians, the Babylonians, the Greeks, and eventually it's the Romans. And the same scene kind of plays itself over and over again. You can read all about it in the Old Testament. It's this scene where they're faithful and God blesses them. And then they're unfaithful and they turn their back on God. And then bad things happen and they cry out for God. And God redeems them over and over again. He redeems them. And eventually there's this new place where in 587 BC the temple is destroyed. It simply represented for them the place where God's glory dwelt, where heaven and earth met, where God was present. This was the particular place and location where God dwelt, and it was destroyed by the Babylonians. So what now? Where's God? Eventually it's, re- it's rebuilt, but it's not the same. And Now it's been 400 years. People were crying out, asking for God to show up. God, when are you going to show up? When are you going to speak again? When are you going to set us free? We were oppressed again and again and again. They're longing for their Messiah, their Savior, the one who will save them, who will be the new King of Israel, who will redeem and restore and make all things right, who will overthrow their oppressors and give them freedom. Because God, you said you were going to bless us. And so they long and they cry out. And here enters Jesus. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest heaven. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred and asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in Galilee. This begins with an interesting scene where um, I I I used to read this. I I had this kind of cool thing. I thought, Man, how cool is it? Jesus sent these people and people just gave him animals. Um, but pretty much every scholar and commentator says the same thing. He had probably made prior arrangements. So they were just saying, hey, we've already worked this out. The Lord needs him. Oh, yeah, cool. Take him. Uh, I was like, oh, it's not nearly as cool of a story as I thought in that. But what we begin to find is this, that Jesus made these arrangements because he knew he was going to fulfill what Zechariah had said. And what Zechariah wrote about was this. He said, rejoice greatly, daughter Zion. Shout, daughter Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foil of a donkey. Jesus comes in and he's declaring he is already victorious. He's declaring, I am the king, I am coming, I am the one you have longed for. He comes to David in 2 Samuel uh, chapter 19, he rides into town on a donkey after he's victorious again there. And Jesus comes in, and this is what he's saying. He comes in and says, their minds are this, that he's going to overthrow Rome. He's going to kick the Romans out, take over the land, make Israel great again, be just like David, It'll be just like the good old days, all over again. And so they begin to shout, Hosanna, which means save us or save me, right? And so these people are shouting, Hosanna, save me. They're putting down their jackets. They're cutting down palm branches to walk across this. They're laying these things down saying, you are our king. It's reminiscent of a couple other moments in their history. And from Second Kings 9.13, Jehu overthrows the corrupt king and becomes king. And then Simon Maccabeus, following the Maccabean revolt, comes into town. And they leaned down palm branches again during that. In both those instances, instances, the oppressors were overthrown. Jesus, too, comes to overthrow the oppressors. The problem is, the oppressors were not the Romans what Paul would later going to write, that our enemies are not flesh and blood, but the principalities and powers that wage war on our souls. Right? The reality is this. It's really easy for us to live in a world where we divide things in two. It's us versus them. It's It's got to be either I'm on their team or I'm not on that team. And whichever team I'm on, that's the good team, and the other team's the bad team. Pick any kind of aspect of life you want to talk about, and you can do that. It's us versus them, right? We never see us in them because they're them. So they couldn't see the Romans as possibly people that Jesus was coming for. They couldn't see that God loved them too, but the reality is he did and he does. Because too often, it's easier to look at the enemy as someone out there than to recognize the things inside of us that God needs to transform, the things in us that need to be made new, the things in us. It's easier to see the enemy out there than the enemy within. And so I kind of love this quote from N.T. Wright as we think about what that looks like. He says, The line between good and evil does not lie between us and them, between the West and the rest, between left and right, between rich and poor. The fateful line runs down the middle of each of us, Every human society, every individual. That is not to say that all humans and all societies are equally good or bad. Far from it. Really that we are all infected and that all easy attempts to see the problem in terms of us and them are fatally flawed. Jesus comes to overthrow evil at its deepest level. comes to offer a freedom that we cannot be found by another person or nation or government, but only through him he comes to say this, come to know the depth of who I am. Come to know who I am. They're longing for a king to set them free. And Jesus says this, I am the king that you're longing for. The problem is you're wanting me to function in ways that I will not function. You're longing for me to be a king in the way that all the other kings you've known before, like Saul or David or Solomon or even Caesar. But that is not who I am. He comes in. He's declaring who he is. He rides in not on a horse, which represents war. He rides in on a donkey, which represents peace. And he says, I am the king of peace. To say that he doesn't come to say he's king would be not true. But his kingdom looks radically different than the kingdoms of the world. It's why I love these words from William Barclay. He writes this. So, when Jesus claimed to be king, he claimed to be the king of peace. He showed that he came not to destroy, but to love, not to condemn, but to help, not in the might of arms, but in the strength of love. He's coming to say, I'm king. I'm coming, I'm, I am the Savior, the one you're crying out that you want to be saved. I will save you, just it's not going to happen how you thought it would. but i will begin to do a work in your heart you know i will create a new kind of people we will call them the church it will transcend whatever boundaries you think exist in the world and my kingdom will know people from every race and every walk and every background they will all be welcome into my kingdom they will all be my unique people they will all become followers of me and i will be their king and they will be my church i love these words from a commentary through our church advisory publishing, writes this, Jesus the king reveals the example of servanthood, suffering, and self-giving that confronts human patterns of leadership and questions existing structures of power. He wants to flip things upside down, but in his kingdom, those are actually right side up. He comes to say this, right? Like, I am your king. I've come to make things right. I've come to give you peace In their very soul, the things that you wage war in, the things that you long to fill your life. Just like Solomon, who kept trying to fill his life with everything he could. More women, more money, more stuff, more power, more land, more victories. None of that mattered, what kept finding it into Solomon's life. He knew he was not where he needed to be. He was a mess. He had everything the world had to offer, but internally, he was a disaster. Go read Ecclesiastes. It's pretty depressing. He sought everything and it was never enough because he had this hole in his heart that only God could fill. And he was looking at every place other than whoever, who God was. And so Jesus comes and says, I will give you what you've longed for and you never even knew you needed. And he desires to save us and most often one of the places he saves us is from ourselves. From the things that have held us captive, the things that have grabbed us, the things that we have held on to way too tightly. So often, when we think about Jesus, we we want to be saved from certain things. We'll pray certain prayers. God, we do it this way, but here's the reality Jesus may not be the Savior you and I would have picked, but He is definitely the one we need. And He desires to do a work in us and through us. He wants us to live what we call the good life, right? I love Dallas Willard, who's a guy who's written much on what it looks like to follow Jesus. And so, one of the things He often talks about is the good life. And so in, in culture, we define the good life as, right, like having lots of money in your bank account, a great job, um, you know, 1.8 kids or whatever the number is now, white pick a fence, like I pick whatever you want. to. Acquire. Like, that's, that's the good life. But what he would say is this, the good life is learning to live in relationship with Jesus in his kingdom. It's embracing the things of the Sermon on the Mount. It's the overflow of the fruits of the Spirit. It is living as God's unique people in the world as a part of his kingdom. When we live as that kind of people, that is the good life. But too often, we think the other things that would define our lives are the good life. So what are the things that we need to let go of? What are the things that keep us from choosing him? The people who gathered on the roadside as he entered into Jerusalem shouted, Hosanna, save us, and they probably yelled it with conviction. And many of those same people a week later were yelling, crucify him. Why? Because Jesus did come to save them, but it wasn't the way they wanted to be saved. And how often is that true in our own lives? I was thinking about how, um, how for parents, oftentimes, like our kids want something and they'll want something that, that seems really good, but you know, there's something better. And so they'll ask for something, right? Um, so I, my son's on this. We went to a restaurant not long ago. We were coming back from a funeral in Missouri, and we stopped at a restaurant. And I said, you need to eat this. And he goes, like, I don't want to eat this. And I said, it'll be good. Trust me. Because he's, he's got a really small palate, right? He's a pretty picky eater. And I said, just try it. And he's like, hmm, it is pretty good. I knew. I know what you like, and I know what you don't like. But I know that this is something you can add to your life that will be better. You can have more than two things you like. You can have three now. Um, right? Like... He liked it. It was good. But, but this is the reality for us, that God so often says to you and I, there are things in your life you think are good, but if you allow me to speak into your life, if you'll surrender parts of your life, I will speak into them and transform you. But it's not what looks good at the beginning. In fact, you think it might not be good at all. And so you're not so sure about it. I was thinking how so often Jesus comes in and He represents for us what it looks like to be humble, to lay ourselves down. I was thinking how my own life. Every time I've I've gone to God in prayer, I'm like God, will You do this? And it's not really about like me surrendering; it's about me wanting Him to do something in a particular way. Um, he never does it, by the way. But those moments when I've been honest enough to say, "God, will You, we take all of me, in whatever area of my life I need to surrender, whether it's." Our wallet or our kids, or our schedules, or whatever it might be, God, will you just take all of this? Crazy thing happens. He begins to do a work in my heart and in my mind and in my life, and he does begin to transform me. But it's not unique to me. It's the reality for you and I as well. If you will, will do the same thing, God, will you just take this? Will you help me to surrender this over and over again? Because Jesus comes and he says this: He does come to take over. He doesn't come to take any kind of side, but to take over. He is king of all. And there will be a day when every person on the face of the earth will recognize Jesus as Lord. Will you and I choose to live into his kingdom here and now, in these moments? Have you experienced the saving grace of God? Have you come to know the one who says, who John records, for God so loved the world, that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should have life. Eternal life, the life of God himself here and now in this moment, not just when you die, but today, you can know the good life that Jesus invites you to in this moment, in this space, in this time. You don't have to wait. Will You trust your whole life to him and say, Jesus, I want you to be Lord of my life. I want to let go of all the things that I've held on to. The season in the church calendar is known as Lent. It's a time in which we um, starts on Ash Wednesday and goes till Good Friday and Easter Sunday, and where we kind of like reflect and pause and step back and say, God, what are the areas of my life that I need to, to be open to your leading, open to your work? In fact, we've placed a cross in the back of, back of the sanctuary. There's a little card you can write on because sometimes during this season, we recognize there are things in our life that we're holding on to that we need to let go of. We need to die to them. They need to be things we let go and say, God, they're yours. And I'm going to leave them with you. Because here's the reality for us. The cross is the place where we lay down all the areas of our life. And so my question for you and I today, is there an area of your life that you need to lay down? Is there an area of your life that you're holding on to? Is there an area that God doesn't have? Is there an area of your life you're saying, God, you can have all of me, but not this. God, you can have my whole being, but but maybe not like my kids, because I don't trust them to you yet. God, you can have my whole life, but like not my career, because that's too important for me right now. God, you can have my whole life, but you can't have... And you can fill in the blank, because here's the thing. Wherever your mind probably went, that's probably what you need to surrender. So this morning, here's the invitation. Today is Palm Sunday, where we recognize that people shout Hosanna and laid down palms, but God doesn't want our palms or our jackets... He wants all of us. And the question for you and I is this. Are we willing to surrender everything to him? God, you can have all of me. Because here's the reality. He's either a Lord and King of our life or he's truly probably nothing. But he longs for us to trust him. If we'll give him our whole self, what you'll find is he'll give you back a good life. The good life that he promises, which is better than you could ever imagine gives us a reason to live, a thing to live for, hope to know, and we can begin to find that our hearts and our minds become radically transformed through the goodness of who God is, that his spirit wants to do a work in us that changes the very essence of who we are. Will you and I say yes to him and no to everything else? Will we surrender all things to him and say, Jesus, you are Lord and you are king? That's what Palm Sunday is all about. And so this morning, in just a moment, we're going to take communion. And you're going to come to a table and this table represents a meal that Jesus had with his disciples not long after what we celebrate as Palm Sunday where they gathered around a table and he took bread and he broke it and he passed it out and he said, this is my body broken for you in the same way he took the cup and he said, this is my blood poured out for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Take and drink. He invited them to come to the table, to come and take these elements. And he said, do this in remembrance of me. And here's why. Because often we need to be reminded of the graciousness of God that says, here's how far love will go. Love will go to even the place of death so that you can know how much God loves you. So your sin does not have to define your life, your past, your anger, your hurt. Those do not have to define you, but you can know who God is and you can step into his kingdom, into the life that he has for you, and you can know the fullness of his love. And we come to this table to say, Jesus, you are Lord. And I want to follow you with all that I am. And I'm not going to lay down just my cloak or my palm branch, but I'm going to lay down my whole self, and I'm going to give it all to you. And I'm going to trust my present and my future to you. And so this morning, in just a moment as we pray to take communion, I'm going to invite you to come to the table. And by coming to the table, you're saying, Jesus, you are Lord. And I know you love me, and I long to follow you with my life. And help me to live and look and act more like. You. Father, as we've come before you today, may you help us to be the kind of people who reflect your love in the world in which we live. May you change our homes, and our workplaces, and our schools. May you help us be the kind of people who offer your love and your mercy and your grace wherever we may go. May we be all people who also receive that as well. We pray all this in your son Jesus' name.